Hey everybody, welcome to the House of Bliss podcast. My name is Cole David Patrick Harmon. There, I said it. That's my name and I am your host. Man, I am so pumped to share with you what I've been cooking up uh, that I just have to play some rock and roll. Uh, No, but seriously, I've been working on this for like dozens and dozens of hours into this between reading books, listening to uh, different things, compiling, working and editing. So um, I am super duper excited to share with you what I've got today. But before I do, I wanted to give a huge shout out to my new uh, patrons. We've got Marcus, we've got Becky, and we've got Matt. Thank you guys so much. You guys help make sure that this isn't just a hobby, but it's a way that I can actually uh, feed my chubby little son and make sure that he stays nice and chubby. Without you, I could do nothing. So what I'm going to talk about today is part of my series, The Glories of the Cross. Uh, But now I guess I'm actually going to open a can of worms and start a series within a series. Very Christopher Nolan of me, right? Uh, Pretty soon you'll be like three series in and you won't know which level of uh, series you're in. For those that have seen the movie Inception. If you haven't, please fix your life and go watch Inception. So have you ever heard someone preaching and just felt profoundly liberated? Like there's hope for the world, like your daily life of mothering and fathering and lawyering, constructing, puppy walking, baby changing, and gingerbread house building. Like it's all overflowing with holy meaning. Uh, Have you ever felt the indescribable peace that comes from knowing that Jesus is king and that we're all in his good hands? Like the gospel is truly good news. And on the flip side, have you ever heard someone preaching and just felt panicked? Like your daily life is a useless distraction from the Christian mission? Have you ever felt the indescribable dread of feeling like the fate of the world is in your hands? Like the gospel is ultimately a dire warning? What we believe about where things are headed is inextricably linked to how we live out our daily lives. The Christianity most of us are handed is what I like to call the Titanic gospel. Uh, So if you haven't seen the Titanic, it's the movie about the blue aliens uh, who are trying to get unobtainium. No, I'm just kidding. That's Avatar. No, Titanic is the other James Cameron movie. But no, but so many of us get taught that the planet is doomed and the goal of Christianity is to warn as many people before it's too late. It's like we're all on this sinking ship and we're in this mad dash to get as many souls on the Jesus-shaped life raft as possible. And this general feeling of dread and panic, no matter how much we try to sugarcoat it with words like unconditional love and youth group, it's the engine under the hood of so many churches. It's honestly, it's hard to want to change the world when you believe that no matter how much you agonize and sweat and fast and pray and build churches and orphanages, the vast majority of people are still eternally doomed. (laughs) Uh, It's good news, right? This fear and dread, it might be the product of a Western approach to the gospel, but thank God and Jesus Christ, it is not the only approach. 
many of us who genuinely love Jesus have been asking these kinds of questions. Like, is this really it? Is this what it's all about? Well, my quick answer to that is that the gospel is always bigger, better, wider, and more wonderful than we could ever imagine. Allow me, my friends, to take you on a journey. Now, I'm going to make an ask here. This is going to be a dense and mind-bending journey. Normally, I keep the show pretty light and entertaining, which I love, and I'll, you know, I'm still going to be myself, but I just... I want to take you a really long distance today, and I just need a couple of things from you, the listener. I need you to put on your thinking cap, I need you to stick with me from start to finish, and I need you to keep an open mind. Uh, the word theology might conjure up images of tea-drinking professors in tweed jackets arguing about Oxford commas and wine pairings. But I need you to trust that I just don't have any use for dry theology. Um, man, I've been in ministry and I care about people too much for too long uh, just to throw some random factoids your way. No, but this actually matters to me because it flipped my world upside down. Look, even as I was writing my notes for this, I was thrown into ecstasies and laying on the floor and just shouting for joy. Uh, so I just need you to trust that if I throw a lot of information at your way, I have carefully crafted this to make sure that every detail leads somewhere. So stick with me. Look, if we're going to challenge mainstream Christianity to go there, we're going to have to go deeper than we're used to going for our average Sunday message. So are you with me for this? If so, grab a coffee, a notebook, some freeze-dried chili from your Jim Baker End Times bucket, and let's get to work. Uh, God bless Jim Baker. So before we even crack open the Bible, we need to talk about the Bible. First, we need to understand that the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is a collection of letters, poems, and songs, and stories, sometimes really X-rated stories, and the whole thing reads a lot more like a Quentin Tarantino movie than a straightforward book. Like, if you've ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction, that thing's got like four different storylines that seem completely unrelated, and then all at the very end it ties together and you go, oh, I see what's going on. Well, the Bible has multiple layers of depth and long story arcs and themes that can be really hard to track with. So in a movie, a great director will use subtle cues and symbols to help you tie the story together and catch the deeper meaning. The Bible happens to have tons of these. So some of the most incredible revelations I've ever heard are, are just hidden in literary devices that are often obscured by English. Actually, every seminary on the planet will tell you this, and I hope I'm not the first person to let you know that the Bible was not dictated word for word. It wasn't like the Lord said, hey Siri, write these things down in a book. No, the Bible, it's, it's an oral history passed down, and then it was compiled and intentionally written and arranged in a way to communicate these layers of depth. So ancient readers, they would have seen these directorial cues like lights flashing on their dashboard. If you ever had a 
nice evening drive in your car and then ruined by the check engine light, you know what I'm talking about. It causes you to pay close attention. So there are things in scripture like callbacks to previous biblical phrases, uh, the opening lines being important, who is or who's not included in someone's genealogy. You've got chiasms and number patterns. And these are not just consequential little details. Okay, so for example, Jesus Christ on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually the first line of Psalm 22. But if you didn't know that, you might invent a theology about a father that needs to turn his face from his son in order to love us. But the Psalms were like the Jewish hymnal sung every meeting. Jews had this memorized and instantly would think of this song after hearing Jesus' cry. So Psalm 19 is a prophecy about the Messiah being crucified. They would have seen Jesus on the cross, and as they thought of its vivid descriptions of nails in the hands, the dividing of royal garments, they would have gone, oh, Jesus on the cross is saying that this moment right here is Psalm 22. And furthermore, one of the key lines of this psalm is literally that God will not turn his face from his afflicted one. (laughs) Do you see why that might be important information to know? Another quick example is that the entire book of Revelation is a chiasm, meaning that the first and last sections correspond to each other, the second and second to last correspond to each other until they eventually meet in the middle. So, you know, chapter 1 is the prologue, chapter 22 the epilogue, chapter 2 as the seven letters, chapter 17 as the seven angels, chapter 7 as the seven trumpets, chapter 14 as the uh, seven angels, etc., etc. So this kind of thing would be super familiar to John's audience. (laughs) Yeah, like some folks want to take Revelation and make it like a straightforward prediction about the future, but we will get into that later. So what... I'm going to unpack for you today uh, is a theme running through the entire Bible. And the writers are using an elaborate repetition of numbers and callbacks and word pictures uh, to help you fit these pieces together. If we miss this because of our Western filters, it can have disastrous consequences, just like Psalm 22. So... Uh, with that being said, I'm going to have a sip of coffee here. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that's great, Joe. It's really not, though. I didn't make it quite right today. So if we're going to reframe our entire framework for the gospel, where better to start than in the very beginning, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything in six days, and God saw that it was finished and blessed it on the seventh day, calling it the Sabbath. So I want you to put a pin in your mind right now in that number seven, because seven is the number that's going to become associated with divine order, completion, and creation. Does that sound kind of far-fetched to you? Like, I don't know. I mean, are there other patterns of seven in the book of Genesis? I'm so glad you asked. 
As Professor Ivan Panin notes, the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the first verse, in Hebrew has seven words. The number of letters equals 28, which is seven times four. The first three Hebrew words translated in the beginning have 14 letters. The last four Hebrew words, the heavens and the earth, have 14 letters. The fourth and fifth words have seven letters. The sixth and seventh words have seven letters. The three key words, God, heaven, and earth, have 14 letters. The number of letters in the four remaining words is also 14. The middle words have seven letters. The Hebrew numeric value of the first, middle, and last letters is 133, or seven times 19. If you're a math genius, and the Hebrew numeric value of the first and last letters of all seven words is 1,393, or seven times 199. (laughs) So there was a Harvard professor who saw that and said, that's got to be just a coincidence. So we built an algorithm and started searching all these ancient texts and realized not in any other text in all of history that he could find were there any sort of uh, uh, patterns to this degree, repetitions of numbers. Um, So it's almost as if the number seven was divinely built into the, the words themselves. So when we talk about the number seven, from now on, we're going to be talking about this concept of a microcosm. The word microcosm, think of it like the two words that make it up, micro and cosmos. That is that something small represents everything about the universe. So with that in mind, let's, let's revisit this pattern in Genesis. God creates a microcosmic garden. He sees that it is finished. He blesses it on the seventh day. Then he fills this garden with people who live in his presence. And he gives the people work to do, to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue. All the husbands are like, oh yeah, be fruitful and multiply. And they all lived happily or ever ever after, right? Well, not exactly, because we know that humanity makes quite a giant mess of things. So Adam, who's in charge of this microcosmic garden and therefore represents all of humanity, uh, more than a little bit drops the ball. Um, actually, he dropped the ball so hard that we all fell into sin. So God chooses a people for himself who he can begin a new creation with. So Exodus, the book of Exodus starts with God's bringing his chosen people out of 400 years of slavery. So I want you to tuck that away. Um, next, God commands them to build a house or a tabernacle to contain his presence. So these building commands for this house of his presence are divided into seven major parts. And the seventh part is about the Sabbath. Ding, 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 ding. So Moses sees that it is finished and blesses it. Sound familiar? So this house of God has to do with the garden, and we know that if it has to do with the garden, it has to do with the entire universe. (laughs) All right, so keeping it rolling, we'll move on to everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is a gory priestly manual for the folks in charge of this temple or house. So God gives seven major steps uh, for the ordination of these priests. So at the end of their rituals, they have to wait, check this out, seven days. 
So they do all their stuff with their tunics and their blood and their uh, spices and pomegranates and whatever. And then they wait for seven days. And on the eighth day, then God's presence fills his temple. So you could think of it like this. The eighth day is now the first day of this new creation. So God creates a microcosmic garden. He says, it is finished. He blesses it, rests on the seventh day, fills it with people, puts them in charge. People mess it up. And then after 400 years of slavery, God creates a microcosmic house. Moses sees it as finished and blesses it. Then he puts people in charge. And on the eighth day, God's presence inaugurates a new creation. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, <laughs> We know that a major theme of the New Testament is that it's a fulfillment of types and shadows prophesied in the Old. So that what happened in the Old Testament was a hopeful promise of something that was going to come but was not yet here. The Old Testament, honestly, is partly the story of how miserable God's microscopic people failed to handle their work. And so Jesus comes to do for us what we could never do ourselves. Good on you if you've stuck with me all the way to this point. I think things are going to start to make some sense here. If you look at John's gospel, it's a bit of an odd duck. Um, Where the other gospels are telling you a nice, historic, straightforward story, nobody knows what the heck John is doing. Um, John is quite obviously trying to say some very specific things about who Jesus Christ is. Not just the man in history. He's trying to show you the cosmic bigness of Christ, right? So every detail matters and paints a picture under the surface for ancient readers. So for example, when Jesus turns water into wine, John says, this was the first sign Jesus performed. Now, have you ever noticed just how many signs Jesus performed in the book of John? Would anyone like to answer for candy? That's what I always say in kids ministry. Well, rather than the dozens and dozens of miracles recorded in the other Gospels, John only records seven, and he calls them signs. So the seventh sign is the resurrection of Lazarus. But check this out. The eighth sign is the resurrection of Jesus. There's that number eight. So here's where things get insane. And now I'm getting really excited. So John's gospel says that near the place where Jesus was crucified was a garden. And remember, if it's about the garden, it's about the whole universe. So in this garden was a tomb in which no one was laid. The Bible calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. It also calls him the last Adam. So just how Adam represented all of humanity and fell into death. So Jesus, the new Adam, raised us out of that garden tomb and into life. John even cleverly throws in that Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener. So later, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he breathes on them. (laughs) Uh, Brian Simmons from the Passion Translation points out that this word, to breathe, it only appears once right here in the New Testament. But in the Greek version of the Bible, it appears in one other place when God breathes his spirit into Adam (laughs) and brings him to life. So 
Remember how God and Moses both saw their work and said, it is finished. Well, Jesus spent his entire earthly ministry prophesying that the temple, the very house of God, the container for his presence would eventually come tumbling down. And at the very moment he cried, it is finished. The veil guarding the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom and the entire earth became the house of God once again. You see, the earth is filled with his glory. Jesus also was crucified at the beginning of Jewish Sabbath. So he raised to life again on Sunday, right? He went down on Friday, the beginning of Sabbath, came out on Sunday, the eighth day, or you could say the first day of the new week. So let's say it like this. The microcosmic tabernacle of Leviticus prophesied that on the eighth day, there would be a new creation. But on that Sunday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus actualized the new creation. Then he breathed on his disciples, put them in charge of being fruitful and multiplying and going into all the earth and making more disciples. And by the way, remember God bringing his people out of Egypt after 400 years? When Jesus showed up, he broke exactly 400 years of silence from God. Oh, <laughs> are you starting to understand the picture? Are you picking up my paintbrush here? Are you, are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Are you buying what I'm selling? So when we talk about the new creation, where is the new creation? Well, the new creation, as Rob Bell says, is right here among the old, and it's spreading. And anyone who's aware of it can fully experience it right here and now. But uh, if you're like me, this immediately raises a bunch of questions. What about the end times in the book of Revelation? What about heaven and hell? What about all this stuff? And I'm going to get to some of these questions. But before I go any further, I just want to ask, have you ever noticed the parallels between Genesis and Revelation? For instance, there's gardens, there's trees of life, there's my favorite, which is the first Adam marrying Eve, and Jesus, the new Adam, marrying us, the church, but that's all at the end of the Bible, so it's definitely in the future, right? Right? Well, <laughs> I want you to take a very deep breath, because if we were swimming in shallow waters before, we're about to take a swan dive into the deep end now, and then I'm going to drive this baby home. Are you ready? So <clears throat> many of us received a Christianity heavily filtered through modern Western mindsets and assumptions. For the last hundred or so years, quantum physics has been completely dismantling science's view of the universe. For hundreds of years, scientists believed that the universe ran on a specific set of principles and laws. But we now know that the universe is not exactly that simple. Uh, thank God in our relativistic world where uh, you are what you feel and you can shout your truth and I can shout my truth and it seems like there's no real truth anywhere. But thank God in a rel relativistic world, at least there's some predictability. Like at least there's some things that I can bank on, like time, right? Like Time never changes. It moves in a linear direction, and that's just how it works. It's like gravity, you know? Well, except for now, uh, we've seen this thing called time dilation. So time dilation has to do with the fact that the passage of time itself can be affected and 
bent by outside factors like gravity. So this sounds like fiction, but it's totally not fiction. Although one of my favorite science fiction movies, Interstellar, illustrates this so well. So here's time dilation. There's a scene in the movie where a crew is conducting a, a mission, mission in space. space. I know I need some effects on that later. Uh, they need to venture onto an alien, alien planet. planet. And they find out that this planet's gravity is so strong that it actually causes time to flow slower on the surface of the planet. So half the crew stays on the ship, but the other half ventures onto this planet. And here's where it gets crazy. The group on the planet only experiences a few hours, but when they get back, the remaining crew had aged like something like 30 years because time is not what we think it is. What if the Bible is not what we think it is? See, we think it's uh, a nice, neat, linear story. There's a garden at the beginning, there's life, de de there's life, death, and taxes in the middle, and a garden at the end, right? What I'd like to propose is that things are just not that simple. For example, when did Jesus die on the cross for sin? You might say, well, 2,000 years ago. But the Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. I might ask you, when were you saved? And you might cite Romans 10, 9 and say, well, I was saved when I believed and confessed. Yeah, but what about verses that say we'll be saved in the future? What about verses that put it in the past, like this doozy right here? He gave us this grace by means of Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But now... It has been revealed to us through the coming of our Savior, Jesus. When we talk about Revelation, we got to know what we're dealing with here. Revelation calls God the one who was and is and is to come. And because of the finality of some of its statements, many of us are told that the events of Revelation are for the future. But remember that whole chiasm thing I talked about earlier? Look, Satan being cast from heaven happens in the middle. Uh, the birth of Jesus is in there. The fall of Rome is in there. So look, what if instead of a linear book of prophecies about the future, Revelation is more like um, a glimpse into what's been happening outside of time in the realm of eternity all along. It shows us what was. It shows us what is and what is to come. And it's all kind of thrown into this big blender of symbolism and, you know, seven-horned sheep and all kinds of craziness. So there's this phrase at the end that we all have been told is about heaven someday. You know, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. But do you know where else we hear that? How about this famous verse? If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. The New Testament is full of heaven now phrases. Things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is within you. You are seated in heavenly places. We have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city. We are citizens of heaven. But if that's true, what about all the stuff around us that's clearly not heaven? Like, how could you believe heaven is now if kids are still being raped and wars are still being fought? Okay, and this, my friends, is my theory, my grand conclusion. What if Jesus 
already restored the garden? What if he brought us into heaven right here and right now? The issue is we just haven't seen it. See, the new creation is happening right here in our midst, starting with Jesus, the firstborn. Uh, the old creation, though, is passing away. First John says, For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. So, I think of it like this. There are two realities or timelines happening simultaneously. The old reality is slowly but surely losing its grip, and the new creation is expanding every single day. It says, there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. So every time somebody believes the gospel, they get new eyes and they are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the more people believe in this and engage in the in expanding the new Eden, the more time itself dilates. Uh, that's why being in supernatural glory community is so important. Like if you're gathered around people day in and day out who are believing and manifesting the old creation... You're going to feel like you're fighting an uphill battle. But when you dare to believe it is finished with a group of like-minded folks, the strength of your collective faith actually bends the fabric of time itself. Where is the new creation? The new creation is wherever you are. And if you have eyes to see it and you begin to work with it, expand it, um, participate in it, the new creation spreads around anybody who can behold and see that all things have become new. You know, a lot of people struggle with this tension, but the way I think of it, it is it always has been finished, it is finished, and it's always finishing, and it's all just one big circle. And the more you listen to the words of Paul and uh, set your mind on the things above, not on the earth below, the more your experience of this new Eden will begin to unfold like a garden around you. And if all that's true, well, let's just say it has some massive implications for what life could be. And so that's what I want to explore in the next episode. Uh, I want you to just put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you really quick. I want to read this prayer over you from Paul. He says, and I'm praying this over you, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Thank you so much. 